welcome to our first installment of our new series called Hallowed, uh, the model of God-exalting prayer. Uh, if you're watching us on our YouTube channel or if you are watching us on Facebook, uh, we want to just welcome you and thank you for joining us uh, as we dive into this new series, uh, like I said, called Hallowed. It's looking at the, at the model that Jesus laid out for us in the Lord's Prayer, and the model really looks at the idea of a God-exalting prayer. It is the model of God-exalting prayer this morning. And so th today we're going to sort of intro the series and, and talk a little bit uh, about uh, what it is that Jesus and how it is that Jesus has uh, called us to pray. Uh, but first and foremost, really what we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 6, uh, some things that Jesus says with regards to prayer uh, before he gives us the model of the Lord's Prayer. So uh, this morning or today, uh, we're going to begin to dive into that, begin to look into uh, this idea of how it is that Jesus has called us to pray. And I hope for, for any of you that are watching, for any of you that are here this morning, uh, that this would be a, a way if you are, are maybe stuck in your prayer life, if you are looking just for something to spark you, to ignite you, uh, in your prayer life, uh, that this series, that this teaching uh, would be uh, the catalyst for that, that God would, would cause in you through the Holy Spirit uh, uh, an invigorating, uh, a renewal uh, of the importance and, and the desire to pray, and how he does that, how he's called us to do that with regards in the context of the Lord's Prayer. So I, I hope that this, over the next several weeks, uh, what we highlight in this series uh, would really help you and, and cause in you uh, a desire to pray, a fervency to pray, um, and, and a model to, to use in order to pray to God in which he has called us to do so. So it's really interesting. In, in Luke uh, chapter 11, we read, uh, there's two places where the Lord's Prayer uh, comes up in the Gospels. The first one is in Matthew chapter 6, and the other one is in in Luke chapter 11 and in Luke chapter 11 we read an account where an anonymous disciple um, posits a question to Jesus uh, he presents a petition or a request to Jesus and he says Lord very simply teach us how to pray see Jesus had just joined uh, his disciples and he apparently had retreated as the Gospels uh, account that he had retreated for a time of prayer with the Lord. And when he comes back from this retreat, we don't know how long he spent. We don't even really know the words that he prayed. Uh, the, the, the Gospels don't record that. Uh, but what we do see is that when he returns, that this uh, anonymous disciple comes to him and says, Lord, teach us how to pray. It was a petition, a request. There was something about Jesus' prayer life that caused in his disciples a desire to know how he did it. That his prayer life had such an impact on his disciples that, that, that there was this sense of desperation that welled up in themselves when they, when they were face to face and when they understood this, the deficiency of their ability to pray. You know, when they realized their spiritual bankruptcy in the in the uh, in the pursuit of prayer with the Father, that there was something about 
Jesus's life and prayer that caused them to ask him to teach them how to do it. I find it really interesting because, you know, there are so many things that, that, that God could have shown us in his word uh, that the disciples could have uh, asked Jesus to teach them to do. I, I find it really interesting that, that God's word doesn't record uh, the disciples coming to Jesus, you know, after, you know, he, he calms the storm and says, you know, Jesus, teach us how to uh, control the weather. <laughs> I find it interesting that, that uh, the disciples don't come to Jesus after he, he multiplies the food, uh, the, 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 the uh, fish and the loaves, and they don't come to him and say, Jesus, teach us how to, how to multiply food so that we never have to eat again. We never have to go to the market to buy food. I find it interesting uh, that when uh, Jesus walked on water, that the scripture doesn't record the disciples coming to Jesus and asking him, teacher, teach us how to defy gravity. <laughs> there was something about those events that Jesus did that were specifically for Jesus because he is distinct. He was the son of God and, and those were the sign gifts. I think the disciples in some way knew and understood that these things were taking place in Jesus's life and he was he was a part of these miracles. He was performing these miracles because he was set apart, because he was the son of God, because there was something distinct about Christ. And there were things that Christ did that we just couldn't do, nor should we attempt to do or ask to do or pursue to do. I think a lot of times, uh, many of us in our Christian circles can get caught up in the, the idea that, well, you know, everything that I saw Jesus do, I, I should be able to do. And, and, and that's, that's clearly not taught in Scripture. That there were things that Jesus participated in, he performed miracles for a specific purpose. And it wasn't so that we could have a model, but it was, it was so that we could know who he was, that he would verify his message and his work on the cross uh, through the miraculous that that people would look to Christ and see the miraculous done in his life and say okay this one is sent from God we know he is the Messiah because of these things but not so with prayer this is one thing that the disciples said Lord teach us how to pray and Jesus obliged he he responded and he provided a model for them. If you're like me, you recognize the deficiency in your prayer life. Uh, so often for us, the, the, the prayer life, our prayer life as Christians is, is viewed as a discipline, something that we need to tend to, something that uh, all too often is the furthest thing from our minds. For me, I, I'm no exception. I, I'm no different than the rest of us in the sense that so often in my own life, I, I recognize my inability to, to pray in a way that I desire to. That oftentimes my intention is to, to develop a more consistent and consequential prayer life, but so often it seems the difficulty in developing that continually uh, shows and demonstrates a lack of my ability to follow through on my intentions. We all want to have a better prayer life. We, we, I think we all desire to pray prayers of significance for our sons and for our daughters if we're 
if we're fathers and mothers. We all desire to pray prayers of significance for our spouses, maybe, our wives or our husbands, our friends. Uh, we all want to pray prayers of, of consequence for those dealing with physical affliction and trauma. We, we want to pray with the confidence that when we pray for healing that God would grant that, that it would be in accord with his will. We all want to pray prayers of, of, of gravity that mean something, that have some weight to them. For those who are lost, for those in our lives that we know aren't, you know, living with Christ, that have not made a, a faith profession uh, to follow him. Those who are uh, separated from God, that have not been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. We, we, we want to pray prayers of gravity for those people that are suffering hardship and affliction, that God would come and, and move and, 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 and comfort and, and bring healing and, and deliverance in that area the desire may be there sometimes but let's face it if we are all adept at praying and it is a discipline that few have mastered but has our prayer ever reflected the petition of the disciples Lord teach me how to pray has our prayer ever started with, Lord, teach me how to pray? That even before we enter into the prayer life, even before we begin to make our petitions known to God, that our first prayer, our first petition, our first request is simply, Lord, teach me how to pray. Because, you know, we should not feel ashamed or inadequate with regards to our prayer life. Paul encourages us in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit is our helper, that, that God has sent us a, a helper in this area of our life. And, and Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep. For words so there is this sense that, that that it is hard to communicate our deepest desires our our deepest concerns our our deepest fears our struggles or even our desires to see God move you know the, the the desire to see you know God formed and fashioned in our lives or the desire to see others come to Christ or the, for for the desire to see the gospel declared the work of Jesus on the cross declared that transformative message in people's lives to take hold and to bring a sense of transformation through the Spirit. Our, our prayers so often, we struggle with the idea of trying to communicate our feelings and our desires. But the Spirit is sufficiently equipped to communicate every desire, every concern, when words seem to be inadequate. For God, the Lord knows what we ask before we ask it. He knows every need before every request. So as we transition from Luke chapter 11, where we see uh, the disciples anonymously come to Christ and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. As we transition from Luke 11 to Matthew chapter 6, where we have a fuller understanding of, of how it is that 
Jesus teaches his disciples and by extension us how to pray. As we transition into Matthew chapter 6, we see that the model that Jesus uh, gives us uh, is positioned in a larger teaching. In Matthew chapter 6, when we read the Lord's Prayer, we're not going to read it right now. We're going to get into that as we go over the next several weeks. But before we get to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, we see that it is in the context of a larger teaching. That Jesus is teaching on a broader topic than the Lord's Prayer. And that broader context of teaching is addressing uh, Jesus' concern and warning his disciples to guard themselves against any displays of hyper-spirituality or righteousness. Jesus is, is warning his disciples to not engage publicly in acts of hyper-spirituality or righteousness. He begins in Matthew chapter 6, warning them about their giving. This is what he says. Beware of practicing, chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, let me just park there for a moment and, and bring a, a little bit of context here. Uh, I don't want to read anything into the text, but I will say this, that uh, it is very easy, and I would suggest very much more easier to fall prey to this temptation because of all of the communication mediums that we have today. It is very easy uh, to engage in this type of behavior uh, online, on social media. That we sometimes practice our righteousness before others that we somehow use our platforms to uh, show others our hyper-spirituality, that we try to prove our sense of spiritualness to the world by the things that we post and say. And, and the goal and the aim of, of those things is not to bring glory to God, but to bring attention to ourselves. And Jesus is warning us, about this he says that do not practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them in order to gain their attention or their affection for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven and then he goes on to say thus when you give to the needy so in light of what I just said to you a practical example is is when you give to the needy sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's warning them about how to give. 
and that their giving should not draw any attention to themselves, but they are to do it in secret, so much so that they were to exercise a sense of privacy, that so much so that their left hand wouldn't even be able to know what the right hand is doing, that the left hand would have to inquire to the right hand about what it had just done. That's the, the intent here. That is the, the, the severity of the privacy that needs to be exercised uh, with this idea of giving and this public display of giving. See, the giving of alms was considered a very righteous act. It was very uh, noble. So much so that the collection boxes, both in the synagogue and in, the, in public, on the street corners, were, were called boxes of righteousness. Jesus was not taking issue with, with giving in these places, in the synagogues or even in public. But what he was taking ish, issue with was the hypocritical fashion in which people gave. He said that those who gave would often sound a trumpet in, in order to draw attention to themselves in their pious act of righteousness. And he says, do not be like these people when you give. Their goal in giving was to draw attention to themselves, to receive the praise of men instead of revering God. Instead of drawing attention to, the, to God, they were drawing attention to themselves to receive the praise of men instead of revering God as the object of their praise. What was meant to bring glory to God ultimately was an act aimed squarely on bringing glory to themselves. And then Jesus goes on to say, do not give this way, but give in secret so that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. Do not draw any attention to yourself, lest all of the attention be taken off of God and put on you. Then in verse 5, he says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So Jesus is giving us uh, some, uh, some uh, requirements here. Restrictions, if you will. He's saying, when you pray, do not be like these people. Do not be like Hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they may so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And Jesus is is not condemning public prayer. In fact, public prayer was a a, a way of life, a normal way of life uh, in the in the spiritual life of the Jew, that they would pray in public, they would pray in the synagogue. Oftentimes there would be a, a time of corporate prayer uh, during, their, their, um, during their service, and oftentimes it would be rooted in the Psalms. So there was a time for public prayer, there's a time of corporate prayer. Jesus was not uh, necessarily condemning that act, but what he was saying was, is do not be like those who simply pray in public for the benefit of themselves, to draw attention and acclaim for themselves by men. Jesus was referring to those who would leverage their pious prayers for the commendation 
of men. The word hypocrite here uh, originally means, uh, was referring to an actor on a stage. That Greek word hypocrite was referring to an actor on a stage. But in, in Jesus's time, it took on sort of a different meaning. It, it, it meant someone who was uh, playing a role that was not uh, accurate to, to themselves. That was, it was in some way someone um, who was uh, considered to be deceptive. A fraud. Not so much an actor because you know when an actor is acting. You, you know that when someone is on a stage and they're playing a role, that that is different than who they are in their real life. That's not what Jesus was referring to. But these hypocrites are those who would, who would operate in deception, trying to deceive you and to, uh, to uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, convince you that, that the role they were playing in, the, in public by giving and praying was, was it consistent with what was in their heart. But ultimately, the opposite was true. These, these hypocrites viewed the world as their stage. They viewed the synagogue as their stage. The public streets as their stage. They played the part of righteous follower, yet vanity and pride and deceit filled their hearts and fueled their desires. They loved prayer, not for the sake of prayer, or not for the sake of of magnifying the wonder of God and the grace of God and the, the goodness of God, but they, they, they loved prayer for the sake of themselves, for their, their own attention. Their goal of their prayer was not for God to be the object of everyone's affection, but themselves. The aim of their piety was to draw attention, not to God, but to them alone. And Jesus said they have sure, surely received their reward. They've received nothing from God. But the end of their vain deeds is in fact what they have obtained. And what is the end of their vain deeds of giving publicly and praying publicly? What is the end of that? The wages of their unrighteous work is the acclaim of men. And surely that is what they have received. That's what Jesus is saying there. But see, God is not interested in our vain attempts of empty righteousness, but instead desires godliness in the heart of every believer, of every man and woman. He, he's not concerned about our vain attempts of righteous acts, but is instead concerned with the godliness of men and women because he sees the heart. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 says this, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul goes on to say, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We did not seek 
glory from man. Paul says that we were given this gospel to, to speak and to, to declare, not to please men, but to please God who tests the heart. See, God understands, God sees the desires of a man's heart. He understands the motivation in which we present uh, all of our requests. He, he sees the intention of the heart in our giving. He sees the intention of our heart in our prayers. And Paul said that we did not come and preach this gospel to please men. We came to please God because we knew and we know that God tests our heart. That this gospel that we bring is going to be offensive to the culture. This gospel we bring is not going to be accepted. This gospel that we bring, we will not water down to make it palatable. And by nature, this gospel is something that will not be received and will not please the ears of men. Because this gospel brings conviction. It brings men to their knees as they realize who they are outside of Christ. And they run to the grace of the gospel, the grace of the cross that is extended towards them in repentance. Knowing that God is the only one through Christ that can save them. That the gospel cuts to the very heart of men, exposing the spiritual depravity of every man and woman. It's offensive. And that is why Paul said that he did not come to preach the gospel to please men, but to please God. That whatever is pleasing to men is displeasing to God. A gospel that is widely accepted by men is displeasing to God. That's what Paul's implying here. See, God tests the heart understands the motive of every man. And Paul's motive was to please God, not man, because if he did please man, he knew God would be able to discern the intent of his heart. And he had to stay righteous and true before God in order to be equipped and carried along by the Holy Spirit to proclaim this message. Luke chapter 16, verse 15, this is what uh, Jesus says in Luke 16, verse 15. You are those, talking about the Pharisees, who justify the, yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And he's referring to the Pharisees' love of money and prestige and honor from men. He was talking about the, the, the Pharisees' incessant desire to, to acquire acclaim from men, acceptance from man pleasing man and loving money. He said, "Those, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You make yourself out to be righteous. That you have been justified before men. That you are, you are responsible for your own justification. That you are not relying on the justification of God. But you are proving your own righteousness before men. Because men do not see the heart. They see the outward appearance. But God knows your heart. And what is exalted among men. What is lifted up. What is valued what is esteemed, what is revered among men, he says, those things are an abomination. So your, your desire to, to, 
to acquire attention for men, those, that which you exalt before men, including their attention and their acceptance, he says, that is an abomination to God. Because you cannot please God and please men. The second prohibition is this. We find it in verse 7. The first one was hypocritical prayer. The second is repetitious prayer. Verse 7, let's read it. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the pagans do. We are back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not empty, uh, heap up empty phrases as the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus warned his followers to stay away from uh, basically incessant babbling. Meaningless words and, and vain repetitions. In some way, the pagans thought that, that these vain repetitions of empty words would, would some way convince God to act in their favor with their petition. But these petitions and requests amounted nothing more, these empty words amounted to nothing more than, than mantras or mystical incantations. See, when if, if, if you see anyone that's praying in a way that is just continually repeating and repeating over and over again the same thing with, with, with the expectation that God is going to be in some way swayed by their repetition, this way of prayer is, is, is not engaging the mind with God, but it's actually emptying the mind. It is, it is mystical in nature and, and oftentimes associated with the New Age. And, and these things are happening in the church. Christians are praying in these ways, thinking that in some way they're honoring God. These practices are often expressed today in New Age, what we would consider Christ consciousness sort of an approach to prayer. In these circles, the, the continuous repeating of words and phrases are believed to, to somehow shift spiritual atmospheres or, or cause a change in, in circumstances, convincing God to act on our behalf. But let me just share something with you that I think is so important in this day and age about how we pray. Our prayer has no ability to present God with any new information or knowledge. And it has no power to cause God to acquiesce or to go along with our plan or our desire in our prayer. But the goal and the aim of prayer is this, that by faith, we participate in an earnest communion with God, dressed in reverence, presenting our petitions in the hope that they are in accord with his will, with his directions, with his precepts. Jesus says, do not pray this way. Do not pray this way because this type of prayer, this, this incessant babbling, this, this repetition of the same word or phrase over and over again, these are empty words. They, they, are, they come from a source that has emptied the mind, not engaged the mind with God. In a sense, 
Two, there is this idea that the, the words that are coming out of their mouths, Jesus was saying, was somehow able to create something. That our words in some way have power to create reality. This could not be further from the truth. This is not how God and Jesus has called us to pray within the context of the Lord's Prayer. And then he says, this is how you pray. Verse 6, this is God-exalting prayer. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Although there is a time for group prayer, public prayer, corporate prayer, we do that even here, obviously, in church. Every Wednesday night we have a time of corporate prayer intercessory prayer even though there is a time for that jesus was clear that we should regard our prayer time primarily as a private act one that requires a high degree of solemnity and humility and reverence remember that prayer was not given to the church to change god's mind but it was meant to bring spiritual change and transformation in the heart of every believer. And remember, he already knows what you need before you ask. Psalm 139, 1 through 4. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. He knows everything we speak before it comes. He knows every thought before it comes. God is sovereign in a way that he knows every word we will speak and utter. God is sovereign in a way that he knows the end of every decision that we never made. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sufficient. He already has determined his provision from eternity past, from the very beginning. And let me say this, God is not sitting on a fence. He, he's, not, uh, he's not sitting on a fence waiting to see if, if our prayers are acceptable enough to him for him to act. He's not sitting on a fence wavering, waffling, unsure of what will take place next. He's, he's not sitting on a fence waiting uh, for us to pray a prayer with enough authority or faith for him to act. He is immutable, unchanging, unwavering, always settled. His word never changes. His provisions are constant and without measure. Let me just say to this, that on top of the idea that uh, our prayers are not to be repetitious or mantras or incantations, that they are also not decrees or commands. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, and we will over the next many weeks, we will see simply, if we look at it in the original language, that these uh, these words, these phrases that we find Jesus uh, modeling for us to pray, they're not commands. They're not decrees. 
They are simply requests. Our prayers are not decrees in that they possess some ability to cause God to act in a way he has not already determined. Our prayers are not decrees that determine or create reality. That authority belongs to God alone. Remember the first temptation of the enemy in the garden with Eve was to convince Eve to be like God. That was the genesis of sin. To tempt men into believing they could be like God. Our prayers have no ability to create anything. Our words have no creative force. God and his authority and his responsibility are solely required to do that. He has all authority and responsibility. Our prayers are not acclamations. They're not mainly simply just observations of what is happening. When we see Jesus praying in the Lord's Prayer, we are not witnessing him just acclaiming or, or praying what the reality already is. They are requests and petitions. But our prayers are not acclamations, at least in the context of the Lord's Prayer. They're not intended to simply communicate reality. God-exalting prayers are petitions or requests whose aim is to subscribe to the will of God. And when I say subscribe, what I mean there is, is that our prayers are meant to subscribe to the will of God. In other words, to agree and to endorse the will of God. They are not decrees whose aim is to prescribe the will of God. That we are not stipulating or dictating the will of God with our prayer. We are not prescribing the will of God, but we are subscribing to the will of God. We are agreeing or endorsing his will. Our desire is, is that we pray our desire, we pray what's on our heart, we pray and petition and request God in the hopes that we pray in faith, that what we pray is in line with the will of God. That in some way our prayers do not determine the will of God or cause God to act differently in accord with his will. But that they are simply petitions that agree or endorse the will of God. Philippians 4 4 through 7, Paul says this about prayer. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, in all things, with thanksgiving, thanking God, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God even though he already knows. Pray by faith, in faith, trusting God that your prayer is going to be in line, endorsing the will of God. 
but they are prayers in thanksgiving. So the purpose of the Lord's Prayer, what is the purpose of this series? Simply is this. The purpose of the Lord's Prayer, the purpose of Jesus' prayer was for one, one thing, to exalt the Lord. That the Lord's Prayer is the model of God-exalting prayer. It is, provides the model for us to participate in prayer that first and foremost, the only aim, the only goal is to exalt the Lord. What does that mean? To, to elevate, to esteem, to, to praise, to revere. That the goal and aim of, of prayer, of our petition, our request, is for one reason, to exalt him, to elevate him, to revere him, to worship. So we're going to look at three things as we go through this series. The first is this. The first part of the Lord's Prayer focuses on the goal. And what is the goal? Exalting the power of God through petition. And then we'll move into the next set of uh, phrases in the Lord's Prayer, which uh, focus on the gift. And what is the gift we find in the Lord's Prayer? The gift is this, exalting the provisions of God through petition. So we are exalting the power of God through petition. We are exalting the provision of God through petition. And you'll see how this works over the next several weeks. And then finally, we end with the glory. So it's the goal, the gift, the glory. And what is the glory? The glory is exalting the certainty of God in his providence. So this morning, or today, whenever you're watching this, my goal and our aim is to provide a model and to understand that Jesus taught us first and foremost that our prayers would be more than anything God exalting, God revealing, God centered. And if it's anything you do this week, if it's anything you do, if you are struggling in prayer life, if you're failing to find consistency, if you're beat down by your deficiency, I would encourage you in this, even before you begin, let your prayer be as the disciples said, as the disciples petitioned Jesus. Let your prayer be simply this, and if anything else, Lord, teach me how to pray. Teach me how to pray. Start there. Start there. He is the aim. He is the goal. He is the center. If it's anything, ask God to teach you how to pray. We're going to continue this series uh, over the next couple of weeks as we go line by line through the Lord's Prayer, uh, as we sort of uh, take out, flesh out, extrapolate, um, you know, draw out the intention of this prayer uh, as we look in scripture that we 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 dive in hopefully and we we um, do some surgical procedures here that we're, we're precise in how it is that we dive into the scriptures and, and, and pull out uh, extrapolate um, all the truth that is that is that is in it that it is clear in what it presents in its spiritual truth 
and over these next couple of weeks, hopefully uh, through going through these line by line, that we can better understand that the Spirit of God living in us would illuminate the truth we find in the Lord's Prayer. So I hope that you can join us over the next couple of weeks as we dissect this and as we get to the root of it and we get to the understanding of it uh, as it relates to how Jesus has called us how to pray. So thank you guys for joining us this week. Uh, hopefully you can join us over the next several weeks as we continue in this series. Uh, have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful evening. Um, and we'll see you next time.